you for taking time to listen to this sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m., at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. Uh, I was one of the older ones uh, in the single men's dorm my first uh, couple semesters before I met Felsch and got married. Uh, I had this lived experience that uh, a lot of the folks at seminary didn't have, and I also had education they didn't have. I had uh, done a and then had already done a master's in business. I had worked for an e-commerce company. I had worked for the university in their patents and uh, copyright office. Uh, and then the great equalizer that is seminary came about. Uh, at the campus, it doesn't matter uh, what your background is. It doesn't matter what education you have, how many years you've worked. Student workers all make the same thing. And so there's this uh, humbling effect that you, you have like uh, done great things for the world and now you work in the seminary library for seven twenty-five an hour. Uh, you, you, uh, you feel like, I could, I could do great things here, and instead you uh, shelf books and check out books. And uh, that's one of the better jobs that I had. I got to be uh, in the library where you could do your homework if there weren't pressing things to do. Uh, we'd take the books back in after someone checked them out, and we'd go shelf them, right? And we couldn't just stick them on any random shelf. We had to put them where they go. Uh, most of the books at Asbury are uh, in the Library of Congress system. They are BS or BT, Biblical Studies or Biblical Theology. And then you have to find uh, this particular number based on their author. So this is one way you can categorize your library. My friend Teddy Ray has done this. He has categorized his entire library by Library of Congress numbers. And so he can tell you this is exactly where it should be. I have organized my library around what looks good together. I have uh, these little areas. Uh, Felsha organizes hers uh, by subject and then by kind of favorites. There's lots of different ways you can organize your books. There's lots of different ways you can classify the books in Scripture, too. They're all the revelation of God for us. They're all uh, explaining God's love and God's story and how God has interacted with people throughout time. Uh, The the Jews would take the Old Testament and they'd break it up into three parts. The the, the Torah, the Nevi'im, which is the prophets, and then the Ketuvim, which is the writings. I like the way the Bible Project has separated all of Scripture into three things. Narrative, poetry, and prose discourse. They all three do something distinct. Narrative, you know, tells us a story. Moses went out to a bush and God appeared to him and then this whole thing happened, right? Jesus went to the well and met this lady and then this whole thing happened, right? Narrative we get. Poetry, uh, on the other hand, is... uh, out there as this whole other way of helping us understand God's heart. We have the Psalms and Proverbs. We have uh, parts of uh, stories. Miriam uh, sings about the, the, the wandering in the wilderness as a poem instead of as a narrative. Uh, we have uh, poetry in the book of Revelation and Daniel. And we have it in this wisdom literature we've been spending time with. Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Job, all uh, live in the, the world of poetry. It's not as time-bound as narrative, right? Narrative says we're going from this point in time to this point in time to this point in time. Uh, Much of our poetic material is kind of out there. It's timeless truths. You know, a tale as old as time to 
to connect this to Disney. Um, it uh, brings something new every day as we uh, unpack the imagery and the language. We, we look at the book of Job and say, well, it's about a person, but uh, what's the feeling and the atmosphere? How many of you read poetry all the time? Exactly, right? So it has been a slog to try to understand God over these last few weeks as we sit in, uh, in this beautiful imagery full of hard things. The, the lectionary authors have, or uh, compilers have done us a huge favor. Uh, these last three weeks before we get to Advent, they've given us some narrative again. They've given us the book of Ruth. They've given us a new way to enter into the story of God's love and what it means to be people who uh, go through loss together and who trust in uh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They, they let us get our feet back on the ground. In the time that the judges ruled is the first line of the book of Ruth. Uh, it goes ahead and sets us in time and space. For, for our big picture of people, uh, we have had uh, the folks in slavery in Egypt. Uh, they have made their way out. They've wandered in the wilderness. God has promised they can go into the promised land. They got a little scared, so they ran away and spent 40 more years wandering around. A bunch of people died in the wilderness. They kept fighting with God and saying, uh, you, really, uh, you really aren't that strong. You're going to let us die out here in the wilderness. And God gives them food and water and provision. Finally, under Joshua, the next generation enters the promised land. And we got all kinds of battles, right? Joshua and Judges are the two books we like to skip over when we tell people about the Old Testament because it's bloody conquest language. It's hard to see the, the gospel in there at times, the good news of the God who was uh, the God of Israel. The time of the Judges is a time of turmoil, a time of uh, occasionally good and then quickly full of idolatry and full of uh, trampling on people, full of famine. It's a time that's not very pleasant. It's, it's the already but not yet of Israel's story. They've entered part of the land, they've conquered some places, but they haven't even finished conquering the, the land yet. It'll take until David is older in life for the United Kingdom to be there. This is a rough time to be Israel. You're in this land that was promised to you, but it's a hard life. In the time of the judges, there was a woman named Naomi and her husband Elimelech and their sons Malon and Chilion. And they're in the promised land. They're in Bethlehem, which is literally the house of food, the house of bread, Bethlehem. And they're starving. They're in the place that God said will be flowing with milk and honey, the place that will be a source of blessing for them, and then they will bless the world, and they're starving. And so they have a choice. Do we stay here and starve to death? Do we try to scrape a, scrape a living uh, up here? Or do we go over to Moab, where we know there's food and uh, flourishing? But we also know it's the place that Yahweh told us never to go. The place that is full of people who are going to lead us astray. People who are going to convince us to worship their gods. People who are other. Do we stay and starve? Or do we go and risk uh, everything? They decide to go. We're going to leave behind all that we know and all that really makes us who we are. And we're going to go. And we're going to, we're going to see how this works. And they go out. And uh, before we, we really even get into the story, Elimelech dies. 
and Naomi is left in Moab with her two sons. And they each take a wife, and things seem okay for a little while. We know that they're in Moab for roughly 10 years, and, and sometime between Elimelech's death and uh, the end of the story, these, uh, this family begins to kind of be okay. They've got husbands, the, the name will go on. And then Malon and Chilion die. And now we have uh, an Israelite widow and two Moabite widows uh, in the land where they have no father's house. The, the one thing that says the sense of security, the, the place of refuge. And now famine has caught up with them there. There is uh, a great grief and lamentation that uh, this is their new station in life. Naomi means uh, the blessed one. And she decides that she wants to be called, uh, I've got it, Mara, right time? The bitter one. She's given up home for death. She's given up the promised land for isolation. She's gone from seeing God as a God of blessing to a God has cursed her. Maybe, maybe I can go back to, to the promised land. And maybe, because there's food there, maybe somebody will have some kind of pity on me. That's, that's the only way. It's the only hope. And so she begins to set off for the, the promised land. And, and as she's going, her daughters-in-law go with her. And she says, no, no. This is a terrible idea. Stay here and, and try to figure it out. I, I know your, your family has given a dowry for you. I know all this. But stay here and try to make it work. It's the only hope. If you come with me, I am an old lady. I would have to find a new husband. Then I'd have to get pregnant. And then those kids would have to grow up for you to have any hope of, of carrying on uh, this family. Stay here. And Orpha does the smart thing. She stays. She is the wise one in this moment, right? She, she, she knows it is a risky move to go with Naomi. Moabites aren't uh, particularly welcome in Israel. This is three women who, quite frankly, are marginalized in uh, this culture. Uh, it makes a lot of sense to stay and try to work it out. And so Orpha goes home, and Ruth says, no, I'm going with you. I'm going with you as far as death, if that's what it takes. May your God strike me down if I leave you for any other reason than death. Your God is going to be my God. And I'm going to love you forever. We'll read more next week about what happens from there. There's this whole big story that's got its own set of endings. But this text stands on its own already. And uh, in, in what I think is some pretty powerful ways. We come after the story of Job, which is uh, the story of a man and his friends who think they have all the answers. They can give the great theological answer for why there is suffering. They can explain away uh, what has gone wrong in Job's life. Or if you're Job, you can say, like, uh, actually, God's the one who's wrong. I know that this is correct. They have all the answers, and yet we see that in the end, the only source of comfort for them is ashes and sackcloth. Ruth, on the other hand, she's a foreign woman, a widower, uh, the uh, lowest of low in the society they're heading to. 
and she has no answers. She has adopted Naomi's God, but uh, we, we don't think there's this huge, like, amazing piety. They've left Jerusalem. They're not doing sacrifices. They're not following the cultic system. She has no answers, but she knows that this God is good, and she knows that the right thing to do is to love Naomi no matter what. And so she makes this promise that, that says, even though I don't have the answers, even though this seems risky, and even though death is a very real possibility, I'm going to love you, and I'm going to go with you. This is the love of God for us. Our God took on flesh and said, I'll go as far as death for you. In Christ, Jesus came and, and suffered on the behalf of those who weren't good enough. He said, I will go all the way to the end for you. The Hebrews text today paints this picture of, of the way that his love transformed the very trajectory of humanity. We are set free from sin and death, and we are set free to love a God who loves us. And then he asks us to do the same. The, the religious leaders try to trap Jesus and say, uh, what is the greatest law? There's 611 or 613 of these, depending on how you count them. Surely there's a, a greatest law, right? And, and he gives them this uh, very wise answer that builds upon two different portions of Scripture, from Leviticus 19 and from Deuteronomy, that uh, the first law is to love your Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and, and all your strength. Because uh, there is one God, this comes from Deuteronomy 4, the Shema. Uh, this is the foundations of who God is. And then the second is like it. He says, I can't just give you one. Even after you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you've got to love your neighbor as yourself. The whole of the law and the prophets hang on this. Jesus regularly goes and demonstrates love to people who do not have the answers who actually have thrown their hands up at times to the uh, religious leaders of the day and said, I can't meet your standards, but I trust you. His disciples were rabbi school dropouts who still didn't get it right even after he had died. The first uh, leaders of the church fought over who would go where, and, and yet, through his spirit, he's invited us to love. And we don't have the answers when things seem hard, he's invited us to love as Ruth loved Naomi and as he loves the church. Frankly, as he loves the world. To go to the point of death, what is, what is uh, love but to offer your life for others? He invites us to, to stop looking for the right and the wrong and first to start with love. Before we set ourselves up into ideological camps and try to set up barriers of law and, and behavior, he, he wants us to start with loving him and loving our neighbor. At times, the church has caused harm by the ways in which we have uh, tried to have the right answers but haven't been rooted in love. Our world desperately needs a church that says, we love you so much, we will go to the point of death with you. Your God loves you so much, he died for you. Who you are and what you've done, what has gone wrong and what mistakes you've made, what answers you thought you had that you didn't have, we love you.
think it's that simple and, and that profound that we set aside the barriers of, uh, of years past. We ask God to, to cleanse our hearts and to help us love fully. I think the world can quickly see through inauthenticity, can see through uh, legalism and uh, gatekeeping. But the world melts at love. And we do too. If you're here today and, and your heart is hurting or hard, if you're uh, struggling to believe, if you're struggling to, uh, to take those next steps, if you're struggling, uh, if people have put barriers in your way or told you that you are not good enough or not right enough or not whatever enough, friends, God loves you, and I love you. And it's that simple. We're going to hear the rest of Ruth's story next week, but her, her proclamation is the gospel. May it be so for us that we would declare our love for the world because we know that we were first loved by, by God himself. Amen? Amen. Christ became the great high priest. He was also a perfect sacrifice. He sits and reigns as king. Through his spirit, he still speaks prophetically. And at the table, we come and meet a God who loved us enough to go to death for us.